Section 1. What happens after we die? Are you a body or a body and a soul? Most people would answer, I'm not just a body. Of course I have a soul. But do we mean it? Do we live our lives and make decisions as if each of us is not just a body, but also a soul? Judaism teaches, you have a body, but you are a soul. At certain times in our lives, we reconnect with our souls. A wedding is a soul experience, for the bride and groom for sure. A new beginning through the spiritual union under the chuppah, the wedding canopy. For many, going to Israel is a life-altering experience of connecting with the land, the people, and the legacy that are part of every Jew. The birth of a child is a soul-stirring moment. We witness the miracle of creation, the wonder of a new life, and we feel the awesome responsibility of the priceless gift to guide through life. On a journey to the countryside, as we look up to a star-filled sky, we can truly see forever. A feeling of transcendence overtakes us. A near-death experience can be dramatic and definitely a soul encounter. People do not recover from such experiences without realizing that they have been given another chance. Afterward, each new day holds new meaning, and even casual relationships turn precious. Death itself puts us in touch with our souls. No one stands at a funeral and thinks about the menu for dinner that night. Everyone thinks, what is life all about anyway? What am I living for? Is there something beyond this world? We know that we are souls. When we look into the eyes of someone we love, we don't see random molecules thrown together. We love the essence of that person. And that essence is what we call a neshama, a soul. In the book of Genesis, it says, God formed man out of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath, a soul of life. The soul is eternal, although the body's existence is temporary. When God decides that a person's time on this earth has ended, he takes back the soul and the body returns to the earth, completing the cycle of creation, dust to dust. For in the beginning, the first person, Adam, was created from the dust of the ground. The essence of our departed loved ones, the goodness and special qualities that they possessed, the part of them that made noble choices in life, performed good deeds, and touched the lives of others, their neshama, their soul goes on to a world of infinite pleasure. In that world, physical sufferings do not exist, and souls bask in the light of their Creator, enjoying the rewards for all that they did here on earth. But what kinds of choices and deeds count? Those of people who saved the lives of others, who led armies to victory, and who discovered medical cures? Yeah, those people enjoy a place in the world to come. But so do those who led simpler lives, who performed quiet acts of kindness and made a difference to those around them. 
perhaps what they did wasn't front-page news, but small acts have merit too and can mean an eternity of the deepest pleasures in the world to come. What we are experiencing now is called Olam Hazeh, this world, while the next world is referred to as Olam Haba, the world to come. We are all familiar with what happens here, but what goes on there? Of course, no one in Jewish history ever died and came back to tell us what happens in the world beyond, yet we are assured that there is another existence. Maimonides, the 12th century scholar, included this belief in his 13 principles of faith. Our oral tradition speaks about it at length, and Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, is also replete with wisdom about the hereafter. Olam Haba, the world to come, is more easily understood when compared to a theater. Our sages state that every person has a portion in the world to come. This means that a seat in the theater has been reserved for each person's soul. But as in any theater, some seats are better than others. If God is center stage, some souls will enjoy seats in the front row, center section. Others are sitting in the balcony, and some will have obstructed views, but everyone will have a place. The seats we are assigned are based on the choices we make and the deeds we do in this world. We are told that we will be surprised who gets the best seats. We'll look down and say, what are they doing there? They weren't so great. What, what are they doing up front? They didn't accomplish so very much. And God will answer and say, they are there because they listen to my voice. We make a mistake when we think that only those who seem great, honored, and accomplished in this world will merit a place before God. Each person is judged individually, and we don't know what difference one mitzvah, one act of kindness, will make when God reviews a person's life. Listening to God does not only mean obeying the laws of what to do and what not to do. Hearing His voice means that we see life isn't ruled by coincidence, that we realize events take place for a reason, and that we act accordingly. We may not know the Torah backward and forward, but if we have a relationship with our Creator, that can be worth a front row seat in eternity. Our sages say that if we took all of our life's pleasures, every one of them, and all the pleasures of everyone in this world and brought them all together, the total wouldn't be worth even one second of the pleasure in the world to come, the pleasure of being close to God. Now, this pleasure may not have been uppermost in our minds in this world, but we know that if we were called to someone's home for a meeting and following the meeting, the host announced that God's presence was about to arrive and wanted to communicate with us, we wouldn't say, well, sorry, but it's getting late and I have to get up early tomorrow. We would be scared out of our minds, but nothing is more important or more desirable than going before God creator of heaven and earth. We can't imagine passive pleasure. For us, pleasure is active. 
We go away on vacation. We ask for a raise and get it. We eat a big helping of the flavor of the month. Something happens and we feel pleasure. So how can sitting in one place be so overwhelmingly pleasurable? Because it's an earned pleasure. What we did in our lifetime on earth has yielded this result. In Olam Haba, we are sitting before God who created us. God knows us inside and out. Every moment here on earth was a gift to us. God loves us more than our parents love us, more than we love our children. And God has called us back to him. Of course, people are not perfect and we all make mistakes. But those errors in judgment do not erase our good deeds. If we light candles on Friday night and then get into our car and go to a movie, God does not look down and say, candles, movie, we're back to square one. The act of lighting candles, the bringing in of Shabbat, is eternal. Nothing can take it away. It is the same with every positive effort we make in life. We all make bad decisions sometimes, and some acts we deeply regret. What should we do about those? Ideally, we should take care of our mistakes here in this life. If we have wronged someone, we should make peace. If we are letting bad habits or character hold us back, we should work on breaking free and returning to being the person we know we can be. When our souls leave this world and go before God, we give an accounting, and a certain judgment takes place. Judgment is not something we look forward to. Who wants to be judged? But this is not just any judge. This is God, our Father in heaven. A human judge might be biased, but this is our Creator who gave us life and everything that happens in our lives. God's judgment of us comes from love, and anything that derives from love is for our good. Further, God's judgment means that our judgments count. Life is not random. It has meaning and purpose. The decisions that we make in our lives count for something, and not just at the moment, but forever. The ultimate reward and punishment happen, but only in Olam Haba, the next world, not here in Olam Hazeh, this world. Hey, what about that bonus at work? I know that God was rewarding me for giving charity. And that time my car broke down, that was a punishment for not driving my mother to her hair appointment. This idea is a little bit right and a little bit wrong. It's right to realize that events happen in life for a reason and that they are from God. But it's wrong to think that God is rewarding us for our good deeds or punishing us for our errors. What is really going on is that God is communicating with us. When we give charity or do anything that is right and good, God doesn't reward us, but he does give us more opportunities to do good. The car breaking down is not a punishment. It's a message. Only you know what God is telling you. Get the message and learn from it. Each year on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, God judges us. 
He looks down at the deeds and choices that we made during the year and decides what our next year will be like based on our efforts to correct our mistakes and the decisions that we made in our lives. But at the time of death, after the burial, we go before God, who will judge us not just on one year, but on our entire lives. The soul at that point can go to one of two places, heaven, which is the theater we discussed, or Gehenna, hell. We believe in hell? It may be surprising, but yes, we do. Why is it a surprise? Often, it's a subject not brought up in Hebrew school or in the synagogues. But also the reality is that we grow up in a non-Jewish world, whereas youngsters, we understand that anything the non-Jews do, we don't. And therefore, if they believe in heaven and hell, then we don't. But we do. Yet the Jewish understanding of heaven and hell differs from what we may hear from other religions. Hell is a place God created to help us take care of the mistakes we didn't correct in this world. It's called Gehenna. But don't get too afraid. It's not a place of devils and pitchforks. And it's not forever. If it is God's judgment that a person has to enter Gehenna, the maximum amount of time spent there would be one Jewish year. A person could be there for a split second, an entire Jewish year, or somewhere in between. That's the reason we say Kaddish, the mourner's prayer, for only 11 months. We assume that our loved ones would never need that Kaddish for an entire year. Ideally, we want to bypass Gehenna altogether. A great rabbi was scheduled to speak on the subject of the next world at an executive lunch and learn series in downtown Toronto. My husband picked up the rabbi at the airport, and on the way downtown, he asked the rabbi to go easy on Gehenna because the audience was primarily non-traditional. He was afraid the rabbi might scare them. The rabbi turned to my husband and asked, Do you have hospitals here in Toronto? Yes, he answered confused. And, continued the rabbi, are these world-class hospitals? Yes, answered my husband again. Would you ever want to check into these hospitals? No, said my husband. But if you needed one, aren't you glad it's there? That's Gehenna. The rabbi explained that Gehenna is a hospital for the soul. Going there will be painful, but it's because of God's kindness, his mercy, and love that such a place exists. We wouldn't want to check in even for a minute, but if we have to, we know it's for our good, and we hope our stay will be as short as possible. The way to avoid Gehenna altogether is to take care of our mistakes here. This is not an easy task, but by making the supreme effort in this world, we will ultimately avoid a much greater pain in the next. We'll talk more about Teshuvah clearing up our mistakes later. Whether we are able to bypass it or we have to spend some time in Gehenna, eventually we are able to enter the theater of Olam Haba, heaven. If we arrive and each of us is assigned a seat, 
does that mean that's the seat we are in for eternity and that our share of pleasure is limited to our particular view? No. The people we have left on earth can increase our share in the world to come and enable us to earn better seating. And that means greater pleasure. How does this happen? In memory of loved ones, people often give charity. They name babies after people. They learn Torah. And they do many things to dedicate and remember their loved one. These are not just good deeds. These are acts we do in this world that have everlasting spiritual ramifications. When we do something in someone's memory, we are saying, because of this person that I loved, I am living my life differently. They may be gone, but they're not forgotten. They continue to be a source of inspiration in my life. Their life mattered, and their legacy will continue to make a difference. What should you do in memory of a loved one? My husband often tells people to take a 30-day period, ideally the first 30 days after the funeral, which is called the Shloshim, and do something concrete in memory of the departed every day. For some, it could be placing a coin in a tzedakah, a charity box, each day and reciting a simple prayer from your heart. Most people, after experiencing such a tremendous loss, feel a great need to do something to honor the departed. Because of the concept of Olam Haba, doing something will not only bring you comfort, but also add to the merit of the one that you have lost. Souls in the next world have an awareness of what goes on here. They don't notice whether it's a cold, cloudy day in your city, but they are aware when mitzvot happen here. The souls of our loved ones come to the chuppahs and the bar and bat mitzvahs. They are there when a grandchild receives their first siddur, their first prayer book. They are there when Friday night candles are lit, when tzedakah, charity, is given in their names, when a baby is born and named after them. By living your life differently because they lived and because they died, you are choosing to honor them and you are making an impact far greater than you will ever know. This is because another step exists beyond heaven. Approximately 1,000 years after the coming of the Messiah, Mashiach, comes something called Techiat Hametim, the resurrection of the dead. Pretty wild, but this is Jewish. At that time, the bodies and souls of many will come back together, and the world will become a very different world than the one we know now. Let's back up and walk through the Jewish view of Mashiach, the Messiah. Mashiach means the Anointed One, and we believe that he can come under two conditions. One, that the Jewish people are so unified and are on such a high level of spirituality and they're a true light unto the nations, raising all the world to the ultimate level of values and goodness, then Mashiach comes as a natural result of the high state of mankind. The other condition is that the Jewish people are so divided and have fallen to such a low level of spirituality and are such a dim light unto the nations that the whole world falls morally at the point when so much strife has arisen 
that we would destroy the world, then Mashiach has to come in order to save the world. If the Messiah comes under the latter conditions, then a war of all wars will take place. Many will die in this war, Jews and non-Jews alike, but ultimately it will end, and all the Jews, led by the Messiah, will return to Israel. The third temple will be rebuilt, and God's presence will again be connected to this world. The physical world will remain as we know it. People will still get on planes, buy apartments, and have jobs, but the knowledge of the world will be transformed. It will be a world of incredible clarity. Jews and all nations will know what their responsibilities are and will fulfill them. Peace, harmony, and unity will reign. The Mashiach is a mortal being of flesh and blood. He will live and he will die. Opinions differ in the Talmud, but approximately 1,000 years after that, the world will be transformed. At that point, all souls here and beyond will face another judgment called Yom Hadin Hagadol, the Great Judgment Day. At that point, it will be decided who gets eternity and who does not. Those who merit it will be blessed to have their bodies back, and the world becomes Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. We will finally be back where we started, and this time we won't mess it up. Those who do not merit eternity will cease to exist in any form, physical or spiritual. What can wipe out a person's eternity? You can do a lot of mitzvot and good deeds, but God still has certain red lines. Maimonides, the 12th century scholar, lists some of the qualities that can wipe out your eternity. For example, a Baal Gaiva, a master of arrogance, has no place in the world to come. Arrogant people are so filled with themselves, there's no room for others. They certainly have no room for God because they think they're God. Also, a Baal Lashan Hora, a master of gossip and slander, has no eternity. The Almighty runs the world, Mida Keneged Mida, measure for measure. Those who spend their time in gossip and rumor cause people to separate from one another. For them, the measure for measure is that at the end, they are separated from everyone for eternity. If we merit the return of our bodies, what do we look like? If we died old, are we old? If we died with one leg, do we still have one leg? In eternity, your body will be a reflection of your soul's accomplishments in this world. If you achieved wonderful things spiritually here and led a life of goodness and value, then your body will reflect that for eternity. On the other hand, if you spent your time here focused on your body and not your soul, well, your body will also reflect that for eternity. How much time, resources, and energy do we spend on our bodies here compared with the amount we spend on our souls? The answer should wake all of us up to focus on what is really important. By doing so, you are choosing eternity. Life sometimes looks great and sometimes a little scary. But don't despair. 
September 11th taught us many lessons, including that the whole world can change in a second. That day, the world shifted toward evil and destruction. But we should realize that in one second, we can shift it the other way. You can be part of that. You don't know what one deed, one act of kindness, one move toward value and goodness can do. In God's eyes, it can be the one deed that shifts the world in the right direction and toward the best outcome. Now that you know that what you do in this world matters to your loved one in the next, let's explore together 30 lessons of Jewish wisdom that can make a real difference to you, to your loved one, and who knows, perhaps to all humanity. Mm-hmm.